Hi, and welcome back to another edition of Voices. This is episode 24, and the show title is Occupy Millennial Voice. Um, this is going to be a different show than usual. Uh, we're going to do this in conjunction with Nico House, and we'll get there in just a second. Dave, can you say hello? Hello, Terry. It's uh, great to be on the show again with you. We're, I think this one's going to be a lot of fun, and welcome to our audience listening in from all over the world. And uh, I think Americans are going to like this show. I really do. Okay, and with that, uh, that's our usual introduction. Nico, introduce us for your side, please. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Thank you all so much for tuning in to this very important segment of Mikasa Sukasa. Today we are code broadcasting, co-broadcasting, I should say, not code broadcasting, although maybe we should consider it. (laughs) (laughs) We are co-broadcasting with our investigative team at Voices. And the title for our show today is going to be Occupy Millennial. And uh, you will find out later on that it is a very appropriate title for the show because millennials seem to be under attack at every single angle. So I'm glad that this is, we're going to be covering this together. And for those who are listening on our end, I think we need to just mention Nico House is his last name. And Nico has Mikasa Sukasa, his own network, uh, an incredible uh, voice out there that's now part of our network. And we're really glad to have you aboard, Nico, really are. And we're part of his network. I appreciate it. <laughs> You're going to love having us. We're alive. Uh, Look, somebody okay, somebody do the, the, the investigative work. It's good God, man. It's, it, it, <laughs> if you all know, it's, it's hard It's hard being the show guy and the investigative guy. Uh, well, we'll give it a try. <laughs> Nobody says we're going to be good at this, and this show is a total experiment. We've never done one like this before, so please bear with us in the listening audience. We're two minutes and five seconds into the show, and let's go ahead and get her rolling. Millennials, the title is Millennial Occupy Millennial Voice. Uh, you'll see why as we go through the show. And millennials are surpassed baby boomers as the number one voting block. This is just a fact. Uh, it's a fact that seems to be being resisted. Nico, you got a thought on that real fast? Well, yeah. I mean, let's be very honest. Bernie Sanders saw something early on, even Trump, I would say, saw something early on that the establishment overall did not, which is that, well, millennials can be very engaged if you engage them, or they can be very disengaged. Now, when millennials get engaged, however, they get engaged at every level, right? So they're not only going out to vote for you, they're going to campaign for you. They're going to uh, advocate on their college campuses for you. They're going to advocate in high school for you. They're going to talk to their parents because the, the generation now is a little bit different than the generation before, as in they're much more willing to engage with their parents and they have a much more, uh, I would say, open and comfortable relationship with them just by the nature of the, the shifts in culture. And so because of that, you will see attacks on millennials to delegitimize their opinion to delegitimize their role in the economy, to delegitimize their role in politics. They paint us all as kids and children without life experiences. And although, obviously, they're not the most experienced, they do know a little bit about what they're going through themselves because millennials everywhere are dealing with the housing crisis right now. Millennials everywhere are dealing with the problems caused by, no offense, baby boomers right now. We're all dealing with the military-industrial complex. We're all being forced into the military just to pay our uh, our education and to maintain health care. So, 
Yeah. And, and you know, we have the situation that uh, is unfolding uh, even as we speak of what happened with a millennial up in Ohio just a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago when, when he was Sam Ronan, who was mm-hmm. a uh, candidate for the Democratic National Committee chairmanship. Uh, he was uh, pulled over by police officers, and uh, he experienced uh, some uh, inordinate uh, uh, um, circumstances leading to his arrest, uh, and that's one of the things we want to point to in this first segment of the show. So uh, let's just take it, take it from there, and uh, you've got a good familiarity with what uh, happened there. If you could just kind of bring everybody up to speed that maybe isn't familiar with Sam Roden's situation and any of the other uh, supplementary material that we think we, that you think we need to uh, point out regarding Sam. So as far as Sam Ronan's case is concerned, I have been speaking to him personally in case anybody is curious. Sam is okay. He was not hurt a lot. Um, however, because of the, the specifics of the case and because of where it's elevated to, he can't personally speak on the, the details of it. Now, with that being said, I've been following it literally since the night it happened. Uh, Sam did actually record live his interaction with the police officers in the area that he is at as he was pulled over. Well, I wouldn't even say pulled over. He was in his apartment complex, uh, and they were being very aggressive. They were yelling at him and demanding that he get out the vehicle with weapons pointed at him almost immediately. When he said, well, why am I being pulled over? And they kept getting louder and more aggressive. So Sam, as any sane person would have done, I said, listen, we don't need to yell. You know, we don't need to get aggressive. It, it, that's, it's just not necessary, and it's not going to change anything. It's, you know, it's only going to get worse from there. And so they kept yelling and pointing weapons at him, and it got more aggressive until Sam made it very clear, hey, I'm live streaming on Facebook. So thankfully, he did not get stunned, and he did not get tased, he did not get shot, but he was choked, choked to the ground with a, hip, with a hip flip and put under arrest. Now, here's what's interesting about that. They read his Miranda rights, but didn't tell him why he was in. They said, you're under arrest. They read his Miranda rights and made sure he understood his rights, but didn't actually help to understand why he was even pulled over. They didn't, you know, usually you would assume you're in a traffic stop if they say, can I have your license and registration? Usually they would come up to your window, perhaps, and say, why didn't you stop? Uh, if We watched then later the film that came out. After all, the fallback and the blowback hit the police department, and they tried to kind of pull themselves out of the dirt there because it was looking a little bad for them. So we thought the dash cam, playing devil's advocate, we thought the dash cam may have revealed a little bit something more that would have benefited them. In my humble opinion, it did not work out like that. It actually made Sam's story uh, all the more intriguing because the cops, had to make a U-turn even to get to the point where they could see his car clearly. And when they finally did see his car, Sam had put on his left blinker, Sam had got a green light, and Sam had made a left. Going on a road that was set about 35 miles per hour, obviously we can't say the speed that he was going personally, but we know the road was about 35 miles per hour. He wasn't going much faster than that. Uh, There was no safe place to stop. It was dark. There was no side road. The next available turn was his neighborhood where he turned in and parked his vehicle. Um, and then that's the, the where Sam started Facebook live streaming, that's where that picked up. 
Now, it got all the more interesting whenever the FOIA report, or the FOIA request, uh, which is a public, it's essentially a request for public information, in case you don't know, um, we got a hold of it. And we got a hold of police report because of it. And so the police story got a little dicey, got a little dicey, got a little people. So all of a sudden, police developed the ability to, to see through traffic lights, hear horns of oncoming traffic that nobody else could hear. Because at first I was like, well, they said they heard horns, so there must not be any sound on this dash cam. And then you actually do hear sound. There is sound on the dash cam. Um, and he claimed that as he was part of oncoming traffic, passing through the intersection, he heard a horn beep and saw Sam physically cut somebody off. Now, I've seen the dash cam. Terry, did you see the dash cam? Yes, and we'll have a link so the people in the audience can see the dash cam. It's in your yeah, first David. show. And David, y'all, you saw the dash cam as well. Yeah, and we will also have uh, the uh, recording of what uh, uh, Sam actually recorded as well. But, yes, and, you know, I've 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 examined it several times, and it does not align with the officer's re uh, report. It doesn't align. Did you see anybody get cut off? Um, well, all, the only thing you see is that he did – at the intersection, he did drive in front of a car coming the other way, which it, which it was at a change of si of uh, signal. There was no cutoff. Yeah. It was just, you know, he just turned. Yeah. It, it, now, where most people would argue and say, oh, well, he should have yielded. Well, yeah, if there's not reasonable time to turn. But yeah. there was no aggressive move by Sam. No, it absolutely was not. It was not. Yeah. And and then, but that wasn't even his his initial reason to pull him over. First, he said it was road rage. We don't no proof of that, no sign of that. There's then none, he said it was none an improper. Yeah, then he said it was an improper lane change. Totally untrue. He used a turn signal. He was very calm in the way. Well, he was sitting. Exactly. He was sitting at a red light, uh, probably for a good eight or ten seconds or more before mm -hmm. the light turned green for him to turn. Yeah, well, I'm talking about the, even the le the lane change into the his left turning lane. He used a yeah, right. He did it. He did it exactly proper. Yeah, and so he was. We still have no idea why he was followed to begin with. It is not. Some people say, "Well, he should have stopped immediately." That is actually far from the truth. You are permitted to get into a safe location. You don't have to stop immediately. You need to stop whenever it's safe for everybody. Because that's not just for the like for the civilian. That's also for the police officer's safety. Here in Miami, you know what happens when you pull over on a highway in the middle of speeding traffic? We had an officer die last year who was hit by he was clipped by a vehicle because the location that he and the person chose to stop at were not safe. It was not safe. So that's not just for the protection of the civilian or the person being pulled over. Um, in the 80s, they were having the issues with women being pulled over and being uh, sexually assaulted by police officers. So that is, there is no reason to not take an extra five seconds, probably. I mean, I, I'm, that's my, that might be a slight exaggeration. Maybe 10 seconds that Sam drove on that road before he made a right? What, what would, you, what would your to, estimate be? People will be able to look at the video and come to their own conclusion, yeah. which is kind of what we, what we count on for our show at the end of it. Uh, we're, yeah, we're 12 is, minutes. We've used 12 minutes of this 20-minute segment. Um, yeah, so, so a, what can, hold on, one second, one second, because I want to explain this part. So what came next? What comes next is where it gets a little weird, which is the obsessive amount of bail. 
put on him, 60,000, yes. 60,000, 60,000 on two misdemeanors and a felony, which is highly uncommon for you to see bail of, of, a, of a misdemeanor match the bail of a felony. And uh, then, forgive me, Nico, let ahead. me back up. There's one other thing I think we need to point out with respect to the arrest. Oh, please. And that was the, the clear violation of the law with respect to oh, I'm going to let Terry get into that. Well, well, but but the point being, in, in the context of the timeline, that mm-hmm. um, the, the officer was requested several times to tell him why he's being arrested and mm-hmm. that there's actually a statute which requires the officer to do that, 2935.07, that in when Ohio, a by person the way. is arrested, they must, it says specifically, when an arrest is made without a warrant by an officer, he shall inform the person arrested of such officer's authority to make the arrest and the cause of the arrest. And the, yep. the, this, these officers refused to comply with that request, even though they're under obligation to actually do so without being asked. Yep. And by the way, people, that is an Ohio state statute. That is not even a federal statute. That is an Ohio way, specific statute. It's been around a, since 19, that, 1953. And that's a good point that uh, that in Ohio that's right, but that doesn't necessarily mean the other 49 states have that same rule. We don't know that anywhere except in Ohio, and we'll have a link to that actual code. Uh, and the Bar Association will have a link to them where they're saying the same thing. Um, so when I looked at the video, the only clear law violation I could see was that police officer did not follow Ohio law. Now, I'm a layman, yep. but that's the way it looked to me, and people, again, can make their own decision. That's what we're That's what we're going to say. And they cornered him where he was not allowed to walk away. So they were not did not give him a reason, right? That's why, and I'm glad that Sam said this. He said, who are you, these supposed, you know, officers, supposed law enforcement? Because how can he possibly know as a politician, by the way? Because in case you all don't know, Sam did went for the DNC chair position. He ran for uh, Ohio House out of District 1. He was at first a Democrat, but switched over into Republican because of this, this is a Republican-saturated district, and he wanted to try to swing Republicans off. So that we've got about five minutes left um, in this section, and, and you did state in your show, which we're going to link, that it it at least has the appearance of being politically motivated to pull him over yeah. illegally, as far as I can see. Um, and, and, and you can, can even you... you can even corroborate that with the, the the slew of articles that are clearly covering only one side of the story, almost all the time defending the actions of the police officer. That's a we'll have a screenshot when we do a Google News search. Uh, we'll show the results of that screenshot that we can see. There doesn't seem to be much news nationwide about this at all, another news media blackout. Uh, what little there is there does seem to be, just like you just said, very slanted. Did they ever try to contact Sam and get his side of the story, or did they just say what Not the to said? my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. But, it's, but you know, usually when they try to contact somebody, they didn't get in touch with them. They say we either did not get in contact with them or they said no comment. But I didn't see that in the articles, and I'm not sure you didn't mention it. I didn't either. either. I didn't either, so, and people can do their own search and see what what conclusions they come to, and that's what I'd recommend here. 
judge for yourself, people. Um, we've got about four minutes. Can you kind of give a real brief idea of a little more detail on Sam's political background? He did run for Democratic National Committee chairman last year. Yes, uh, uh, yep, against uh, against Tom Perez and Keith Ellison. Tom Perez is currently sitting Democratic chair, and there was a there was there was some funny business that went on in that election. Um, but probably more so specific to Ohio, District 1 is an extremely important district because the person who sits there right now, which is, oh, man, I just had a brain, Kush, Kosher? I believe it's, it's, it's No, I think that's his name. It's Kosher, Kosher. Um, he actually is sitting on the Foreign Affairs Committee right now in the House. Which Yeah, we'll go ahead and try to have a link to that, too. There's a political uh, – David, help me out here. Is that Ballotpedia? had the political background on Sam for sure and then I think his yeah. people are also yeah. and Sam took twenty percent of the votes by the way. When he ran he took twenty percent of the votes in both the Democratic primary and the Republican primary and he was about to start working with Green to start having the coalescence of the progressives and the Republicans and the uh blue people in the area to get behind a greater goal. And so because he was able to pull that many votes from both parties, that could be potentially seen as dangerous. And, you know, oh, this God. isn't the first time that we've seen where there's been threat or uh, intimidation on candidates who have um, wanted to uh, get their voice out there by, by police, by being arrested. Uh, we know that happened to Jill Stein, who was running for president uh, on the Green Party ticket back in 2012, where uh, she was actually uh, held for several hours in handcuffs. Uh, and that's going to be – we'll have a link for that on our uh, page as well. That'll take us into the second section. Uh, the second section, uh, we, we do want to mention also that we did a show on the DNC fraud lawsuit, and that's not what they want to call it. Uh, you'd know it better than I do, Nico, and you were – No, we do call it DNC fraud lawsuit. Awesome. I haven't been screwing that up. It's, it's nice to get yeah. something right once in a while. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we we'll definitely have a, that. We'll have a link to that show where we interviewed uh, the, one of the two co-lawyers in that case, and you're involved. You, you've got some personal knowledge on that case, too. Nico, in about a minute, <laughs> real quick background, because yeah. that's a whole another couple of shows, too, I'm sure. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, long story short, I was the one who came up with the concept. Uh, I was the one, I came down to Miami and uh, took everything that I had gathered from doing from doing investigative work with uh, with Jam Pack Super Pack, and um and in my experience on the Bernie Sanders campaign in North Carolina, and then I came up with the concept of of how to sue and how to win. And right now we're in the federal appellate court, uh, doing oral arguments. Awesome. Well, somewhere up the line, I'd like to get an update, but if really at this point, not that much to update. You're still the case is still being moving forward. I assume. Uh, we did it. We did have one update, uh, uh, evidential update. Okay. And Cassandra Fairbanks. Yeah, Cassandra Fairbanks had a DM conversation with Gucci for two, who we now suspect was an American psyop. Um, where Gucci for two was adamant about trying to figure out exactly how close we were to winning the case. Like he was adamant about it. Uh, we'll try and get a link to that. Um, mm-hmm. So it's we'll on Twitter. If you have it, if you can go to DNC Frost Lawsuit's Twitter, if you want to okay. see it. Okay. And and we'll try to get that link too. Uh, we're into that second section, like uh, you said, Dave. Uh, Jill yep. Stein was arrested in 
2012 uh, because there was no seat for them at the debates. Uh, the third-party debates then of 2012 uh, happened because they, the, the two candidates were – there were political presidential candidates being arrested in 2012, people. If you weren't aware of that, it should be a headline. Um, yeah, for uh, for just for trying to debate, man. Yes. I wonder. If, yes. I wonder if candidates should be, you know, arrested for trying to, you know, subvert political like uh, or federal investigations. I don't know. Is that a thing? Do, do candidates get arrested for that, or is it just debates that they get arrested for? Well, we definitely <laughs> can document it in 2012, and probably there's a pretty good database, but I don't think we got time right now, unfortunately. Uh, so this millennial voting block is now bigger than the baby booms. It's the largest block of votes. And I see the millennials being slurred quite a bit. Uh, can you kind of once again give us a little background on what it's like to be a millennial trying to uh, – you guys have got the con here. We have passed yeah. the torch from the baby boom to the millennial generation as a voting block. I can just speak of I can just speak from the journalism side of Melinda, which is a very unique or not. Um it's it's difficult when you're as young as I am, especially when I started, I was twenty six when I started my journalism career. And speaking about some of the things that I have to speak about does require a lot of political experience that I just so happen to gather. Uh but it's very you know, it's very unique for a twenty six year old to have that much experience and that, that many political contacts. And so when you're trying to speak about these issues, you have, you know, no offense again, baby boomers and the children of baby boomers <laughs> who, who are who are always like, you just need you need more experience to understand how things really work. The Rockley has always been here. You don't really – how would you know that? Like that's yeah. – I deal with that regularly. I have people – when they when they offer critiques, it's never actually legitimate critiques. It's them telling me what they would have rather heard or what would have made my claim more legitimate in their mind. And so that's <laughs> it's the idea that millennials are kids even after we're adults, and that's because that's how the mainstream media and and, and like and, and certain like memes on Facebook and and I know it's huge. In the left-right paradigm, we're perceived as two different. Like in, in the right, we're perceived as very needy. On the left, we're kind of like almost idolized in a sense. Like we're invincible, but we can do whatever we want to do. <laughs> you know, they're resilient. They're resilient, too, right, Jake? <laughs> yep. So, well, well, you know, you know, it's interesting because when you think about the millennials and the fact that they're being told, "Well, you don't have enough experience." Well, there's certain things that they've got tremendous experience in. Uh, there's a uh, article on uh, the week magazine uh, which they talk about about occupy wall street and the people that were involved which were many of millennials 64 percent of the people that participated in occupy wall street or any of the other events uh, were under the age of 35 and the vast majority of them were low income individuals so they had experienced they, they had experienced a lack of economic uh you know uh, uh security stability yeah, mm -hmm. and and uh, and and so for them, you know, for people to say, well, you have no experience. Well, in certain areas, they have tremendous experience having to do with lifestyle and uh, their ability to move out and participate in the political process. I mean, so, I would even go a little bit. Is it, and, it, and they say it's a millennial thing, right? But I'm, I know at least one of you were alive in the '70s. 
I'm pretty sure both of you were, were if not adults, you were close to adults in the 70s. Yes, and so they used yes. to say the same thing whenever the rise against the military-industrial complex started really heating up because of Vietnam and Korea, and people started seeing the patterns, right? And then the, the millennial influence, I always tell people, I say the thing that was always interesting about JFK was his evolution. He came in as a neo as neoliberal royalty, and then he evolved and evolved and evolved, and then he evolved so much that he had to be quieted. But I still remember how you know how impassioned how passionate how that speech was about not allowing the, the essentially the deep state to control the country, and you know where 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 they use the narrative to do so, and that's exactly what we're seeing right now. If you legitimize the millennial legitimize their message and that takes the thought that uh the housing crisis still exists that that removes the idea that college isn't necessarily translating the job so you keep sending your kids there without questioning the legitimacy of i'm not saying don't go to college i love the experience of college i never actually went to college to get a job i went to college because i wanted to learn i wanted to grow and i wanted to meet people but they're telling you if you go to college, you get a job. Well, now it's if you get your master's, you get a job. And more specifically, it's even telling you, well, just get your doctorate. Then you'll get a job. Maybe when you get later. your doctorate, you get, you'll get your job. And then yeah, how much get, money are you in debt when you've done all of that? Just yeah, and how are you, and are you going to be likely to invest into – are you going to be able to invest into a house? Yeah. No. Uh, can, can, so we're, can you invest we're, into stocks? No. See what I'm saying? It's a, it's a, it's a downward spiral from there. Uh, there's one more experience that you millennials have that is not being said here. It's not us old farts who are fighting all the wars that we're losing all over the world. It's you. You're a veteran, right? Yeah, yep, yep. And um, Sam was a veteran. Sam Ronan was a veteran. So that was I think, what we even bring. I think, and this is you got to confirm with Sam. I got to confirm with Sam. I think he's reserved still. He's still a reservist. Okay, so here's one experience that you guys have that I don't, thank God. I would, I'm afraid of everything. I'd have made a terrible soldier. <laughs> but but the experience that you guys have got, well, you're being told by my generation of baby boomers to, to do this the right way, is you are fighting all of these wars. You have had your hit. Um, oh, man, yeah. And, I've and seen, where's I've your seen, voice? I've, I've lived with people who've had PTSD, man. I had somebody who developed schizophrenia. From from deployment, it was it was a scary it was a scary sight of the infantry, and it's it's not it's it's sad because it's it's become the norm, and it's it's not the norm like they're scared of war. That's not what they're scared of. The, the truth of the matter is, people, we went in knowing we were going to be able to kill who we wanted to. We had all the weapons, we had all the technology, we had all the intel. Those people were scared for their lives, and yet it sounds great when you're like, oh, we're going to go kill the terrorists, right? We're going to go kill the insurgents for freedom. Make no sense. It's like the great Cat Williams said, when the hell did my free? how the hell did my freedom get all the way to Iraq? I have no idea how God all the way over there. Like, I guess we got to go chase it down. Um, and, and, that's, and that's, people don't find that out until you have to, you know, pull a gun out on a, on a, on a, on a child, on a boy, a young boy, and you're, you're trying to figure out why he has a gun pointed back at you. Didn't realize that the last time we raided their house without any warning, we killed his father. So now he's he's protecting his family because he's the last male left. You know, and that's a hard thing to deal with. We're it's 28 minutes. 28 minutes right, into the guys. show, guys. We got about 10 you know, minutes left. 
there, there's another piece here that um, I think is important, and that is um, there was a Pew Research did a uh, a uh, poll back in 2014 or 16, somewhere in there. I'm trying to remember when it was. Uh, I guess uh, yeah, 20. I'm looking here. 2014, March 2014, and the results of that poll: 71 percent of the millennials want to end the two-party duopoly. Um, that's a pretty significant number of people that believe that we're really being manipulated by a system that seems to indicate that they that they're polarized in terms of ideology, but in reality they're not. So uh, address that a little bit, if you would. Uh, I would. I mean, I 100% agree. Um, I think that there is this legitimate move, and there's a there is an, and I would say that you know what that's indicative. It's indicative because you see the establishment on both sides working their hardest to end that, right? So on the left, you had the Women's March that was totally partisan, even though it was supposed to be nonpartisan. But what was amazing was that I had people on the ground, I had reporters on the ground there, uh, Fiorella, uh, Mallorca, and, and Craig Dardula from the Combo Couch on MCSC Network. They were like, you know, although it was a Democratic-sponsored event, all of them were like, uh, they're still going to have to win my vote by talking about single payer. They're still going to have to win my vote by talking about ending the military-industrial complex because that's the only thing that we care about. Because I mean, not the only thing we care about, but those are the things that have harmed us most. And it doesn't matter what you say, all the fruff, fluffy, fruffy words in the, in, in the world. We still don't have health care. I'm fortunate to have it. That's right care. But majority of millennials don't have health care. They're not living with their parents. And then they're tired of going to war for somebody's oil, you know, for money that we're not even getting. So, so let's that? let's talk let's talk about uh, how do we end that? Uh, well, uh, give me. I want to talk. I don't want to just pick on the left because it's also on the right. The Koch brothers right. are funding a, 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 a um, an organization called whew, something is Point Turning Point USA, and it's it's headed by a kid who claims that college campuses are just out here brainwashing everybody. And he knows everything about college campuses, right? The man has never been to college. Never been to Never attended. But you know, do we have that documented? That yeah, documented? actually, I'll send that to you. We'll I will have send links. That to you. We'll have links. Yeah. To that. So Charlie Kirk is that themselves. That's beautiful. So, but uh, it's funded 100. percent It's funded primarily by Koch brothers. So you have the duopoly spending all of their time and money, not talking about the issues, but explaining why you should hate the other side. And it's more potent now than ever before. And so you know that we are coming together because of the money, the massive amounts of money that's being spent to keep us apart. Okay, so the duopoly, let's real quick, in case people don't know what duopoly is, we'll have a link up to the ever-popular Wikipedia. <laughs> you might want to check the size just Wikipedia, but we'll start there. Uh, and it describes duopoly. But real quick, duopoly system, uh, Nico? Uh, real quick, so the duopoly is the idea that the left fits every stereotype and has to, you know, that you consider about the left, and they have to be within the Democratic Party, and you have to vote for the Democratic Party in the right, same concept. And that if you ever, ever, ever think about voting third party or ever, <laughs> ever, ever think about not voting Democrat or Republican, 
Then you're a Russian, and that's a new development in Duopoly, by the way. That's a new development in Duopoly. You know, so, you know, they, the, it's the idea that if you disagree with somebody, or if you agree with somebody in the Republican Party on the, on, on something, they, you know, they call you a, a right-wing conspiracy theorist. Or if you, if you agree with somebody on the left about something, then you're a libtard. Like, it's the idea that there's no, there's no possible way that we can coalesce. Uh, and, and, and come together on the issues when that's just simply not the case. But yeah, let me and, you know, let me come up with a. Oh, go ahead, David. I was just going to say that when we really sit down and think about it, what what we really need to start focusing on is how to protect freedom and our unalienable and constitutional rights, and make that the uh, the uh, cause or the movement that we all start to come together on, because that's where we Absolutely. all can agree. Absolutely. Now that's so individual. That's, that's where it really needs if to you're, if you're coming at it from an individual freedom point of view, as opposed to statist, which is showing my classical liberal, because that's what I am. I, I don't know. I, I'm a classical liberal Democrat. And there used to be liberal Democrats, and there used to be liberal Republicans, and then they decided to turn the word liberal into an insult, which we've talked about before repeatedly. Yeah, uh, that's what It I'm means guess. free man, just in case you're new to the show. <laughs> so insult me again. Call me a free man again, please. Uh, so let me come up with a startling political concept. Are you ready? Now, this is just a theory, but it's pretty radical. Everybody ready? Uh, maybe that a party candidate should be supported by his party, not focusing on the party's concept of the political people are supposed to be supporting the party. And I didn't say that very clearly. If anybody <laughs> take a rap at it. Uh, does that kind of happen? Anyway, make any kind of sense at all? So what you're saying is the party should be focused around the candidate they're supporting, not the not the will of the party. Yeah, and that brings us into let's talk about the history of how we get duopoly. Why are there two parties? And there's this big, long, horribly complicated book by one of America's best historians named uh, Charles Beard, and he explains the history of how we got parties. <laughs> Really well, <laughs> and they screwed him over big time for his punishment for his sins. But that's another story, and we'll try to throw a link to that. But anyway, what he says was, is the rich people. There, people talk about well, we shouldn't have any parties at all, and then that's kind of like we had up until the Jefferson Adams election, and that's. What I don't think we should have any. I don't believe that we should have. So the so the reason that we have parties in the modern era is because we have to be able to monitor their spending, right? The problem becomes whenever we can allow parties to make laws about how other parties can act within the electoral process. That is absolute <laughs> lunacy. Yeah, now we're not really getting away from, from the individuals, right? <laughs> it's like you know it's all about the party. Gotcha. Yeah, you're, you're uh, consolidating all the power into a document. Well, that's like, like you know, into a little uh, uh, LLC or not an LLC, excuse me, a nonprofit. You know what I'm saying? Like a five hundred one c three, five hundred one c four. That's not what the democracy is. The DNC election did bring it up that their legal defense is that we're just a corporation or something. But all of you people who voted in the primary, it doesn't mean squat because they don't have to do this is their position of course yeah and, which and not real way, quick is a lot wouldn't it be, go ahead i was going to say wouldn't it be fair to say that what we've we've come to is that we've got an we've got oligarchy everywhere 
Yeah, uh, really not, not fair to say. I think it's the it's the only correct way to say it. <laughs> and there's database that goes with that, and we'll try and link that it's an oligarchy. That's not just us saying it. Uh, uh, Harvard also, study found that. I mean, there are numerous. A uh, Harvard study found that. Uh, I mean, this is Harvard. Like, you can't get any more, you know, elitist than that. Well, and they I mean, just say, well, we're effectively an oligarchy. We'll put up, we'll put up the major uh, 2014 study by Northwestern University and Princeton University's political science departments on that, uh, that where the conclusion is America is not a republic anymore. It's an oligarchy. It's a 20-year study. Okay, and while we're in the neighborhood, I heard you say the word deep state, and that word sucks because they're trying to make it mean all sorts of weird stuff. There was a guy from Harvard, right, David, and he did a study, and he called it double government. And this is like yeah. 117 pages from a guy from Harvard, so... Yes, it's kind of boring, but if you want to question his logic, good luck. I mean, it's it's like there is double government. You cannot look at the facts and come up with any other conclusion of it. Oh, it's not a new idea either. It's not a new idea. This is, you know, 18, 1867 was when this came out, so it's... <laughs> We'll have the link to it, uh, pack a lunch, because it's a another hundred and some odd pages long, but it is worth reading, people. So uh, I will please. say this. I will say this. As, as de- playing devil's advocate, as I love to do, uh, the origin I prefer <laughs> personally the term deep state is because although the idea of the double government is real, the difference is one is in plain sight, as you can see on the surface, and the other one is buried behind the bureaucracy and the propaganda, and that's yes. why... I would, cause that's why I prefer the term deep state because double government would intend that, you know, oh, they're both right here and they're in front of us. Look at it. You know, and it's, I mean, it's <laughs> becoming more clear, you know, it's becoming more clear that we have a double government, but not everybody believes that. And the reason is because of how suppressed uh, and hidden the deep state is. Yeah, We're the covert, 40 minutes. The covert, the covert parts of it, yes. Mm-hmm. We're coming up on 40 minutes. We've got two minutes left in this section. Dave, did we hit all of our talking points we wanted to kind of try and get a discussion on here? Yeah, I think we did pretty well. I'm looking here through the list of things we wanted to cover, and it looks like we got it uh, done pretty well. Um, I think the point here, a nutshell uh, answer to uh, the two-party system is follow the the power. Uh, Again, you dropped out. The the point is is that the two-party duopoly really comes down to the idea of follow, follow the money, follow the power, if we remember our dear friend uh, Anton uh, Anthony Sutton's point on yeah, that. Yeah, we'll have a link. We'll have a link to the background on that too, so people can wade into that. Uh, that's a, a good point. We're coming up on uh, 39 minutes Se- now. Go ahead. Segment three: Millennials and media. That's where we're going yeah. next. Okay. Uh, let's start with slam on millennials number one on my hit parade. Uh, millennials only get their news from John Stewart. Uh, and there's a... <laughs> not, a bad, not a bad guy to get news from, by the way. Not a bad guy to get uh, news no, from. No, and, and we're going to have some links that go with that. David kind of <laughs> helped us out with those with those links that people can take a look at. But yeah, it is sure. a myth, right? We've, we've got data showing that that's uh, not correct. <laughs> yeah, we, we we have a quote. We have a quote from a lady named uh, McKee. She says, "I'm a millennial and I love John Stewart, but here's why I think he created a generation of incompetent news consumers." <laughs> <laughs> no, 
no judgment. No judgmental thing there, but well, let's not pick on her too bad. That's a statement by a millennial herself. So yes. So well, you gotta remember, not all millennials are paid equally. Okay, so let's be very clear. <laughs> the problem with millennials being overall broke is that when you have a, a lot of millennials, they get a millennial ambition is very dangerous because. Like in any in any group, any marginalized group, and I do believe although millennials are the, the you know the number one voter base, we are potentially the most marginalized because of that. Uh, <laughs> when you get an opportunity to succeed and to be able to take care of yourself and your family, like in every other example, you become an individual. You separate from the pack, and then they use you to target the very base that you're supposed to represent to to legitimize their claims about that particular base. Are there arguments against them? I should say. Incompetent news consumers. <laughs> how about victim blaming here, y'all? <laughs> yeah, right. You you know how I knew that. Blaming. You know how I found out about the 9/11 situation with the cancer that was being caused by the the attack on the fire department, the the or the firefighters, and they had their their insurance taken away from them by the federal. You know how I found out about that. That was John Stewart. That okay. was John Stewart after he left the Daily Show, specifically. He went right after he like almost a week after he left the Daily Show. He went right to D.C. and started advocating for those firefighters. That's what Dr. John Stewart did. We've got a a quote from Jimmy Dore, who is another comedian who does news kind of. (laughs) Once again, uh, there seems to be a pattern here. And and as sad as the news is right now, and scary as the news is, maybe that's what it takes. Maybe it does take a comedian to be able to say hey, George stuff. Carlin. Nobody was, it George, wasn't a lot of yes. people realer than George Carlin. He, he was the Mark, best man. He really was. Does go way back. There was that guy from Oklahoma. All I know is what I read the newspapers and, uh, I can't think his name, but we'll have a post up for it. But that all the way back to the last year. Oh, well, we're talking about Will Rogers. Yes. yes. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. And another one in the 60s was a guy named Tom Lehrer. He was a Harvard uh, graduate, and he used to create these uh, parody musical, these songs about all <laughs> yeah. kinds of political. He was incredible, incredible parody. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and with my millennial bias, I will say that also if you're interested in seeing a modern take would be Dave Chappelle. His last oh, two, yeah. his last <laughs> two uh, Netflix specials were just, oh, man, I remember he said, he said, I'm so excited about Trump. And he said, man, I looked at them and said, you dummy. He's not working for you. You're poor. He's working for me. <laughs> it's, it's nice. See, why are you Dave excited? Out of, Dave is out of exile. It's nice that they've actually let him back research. I know, right? I know, right? You didn't hear much from Dave there for a while, but he did show up at Ferguson. Unlike a yep, lot of yep. people, Dave is Ferguson a was a hairy nightmare. I, I was impressed. He was actually there. He wasn't there just... Very intelligent. He, Much more intelligent than what people think he is. Uh, and a superb comedian. One of the, That show was one of the funniest shows I've ever seen, and I can't believe they let him on TV as long as they did on commercial yeah. TV. It was a very... Uh, people always get surprised. It's weird that people always say, why do you have to inject politics into comedy? I'm like, hold on, what? That's a new thing? I thought that was pretty much the norm. <laughs> Wasn't that the norm? <laughs> you know? You it's you know different levels of politics. But sometimes they deal with the social, the social political issues. Sometimes they deal with the, the governmental. But it's all politics. That's pretty much what. Those are the best comedians I know. What Jimmy Dore again? Uh, and you've worked with him. He's kind of in uh, sister station with what you're doing too, right? 
Uh, uh, he's with. He's actually with TYT. Um, I was I was on um, Ron Pacone's show, who is uh, Jimmy Dore's co-host of uh, one one of the co-hosts of Progressive Aggressive Progressives, and uh, the Jimmy Dore show. And um, we work we work with a lot. Like we do a lot of intersectional stuff. We cover almost the exact same things. We network with him and Lee Camp, Tim Black. We try to work together as much as possible. Oh, there's three from the. Uh... Susie Dawson, who's a two or three time guest on this show, uh, yeah. she just did Worked the Unity for Jay. Also. Yeah. And, and we will have a link to your. You did an hour for her show. Can you real quick mm-hmm. give us an idea what that was all about? Um, essentially, Julian Assange, if you all don't know, which you should by now if you're on this channel, uh, is being held <laughs> with, you know, at this point, the reason we don't even really know legally what the reason is. Everything legally that they can hold him for has been thrown out the window ten times over. So uh, they're just being uh, petty and vindictive at this point. But he is still being held. His health is, in fact, deteriorating. He has no Internet. He's not allowed to leave the embassy or he will be arrested by no country other than the United States of America. Uh, And so they held WikiLeaks and the Internet Party worked together to create an online vigil for Julian. And uh, I was very, very fortunate enough to be asked to speak and Pretty much I was just, you know, paying tribute to the fact that really there, he brought independent journalism and, and, and gave us a voice that was, was so loud and reverberated so deeply that, I mean, the WikiLeaks literally made people famous because of, you know, covering them when no one else would. Uh, networking with people who, like us working together and collaborating and covering them together and it just reminded us why the First Amendment, you know, why free press was ingrained in the First Amendment. It was because whenever this moment came, somebody was going to have their free speech taken from them. And we were going to have to be the ones to fight because our democracy was going to rely on it. And that's, exactly. what, that's what Julian Assange reminds me of. And, you know, Nico, we'll- one, of the key, one of the key points, I think you even addressed it during the show, but I heard it from several others is that if Julian Assange goes down, nobody is safe. No no person reporting anything about any any situation anywhere is going to be safe in being able to express what the First Amendment is there to protect. And that's Mm -hmm. the key point of it all. If Julian Assange isn't safe showing people what happened, he didn't show people made-up information. He didn't, you know, fabricate anything. He showed nope. people what happened. Hey, uh, I'm just letting you know everything that y'all thought was happening is happening. Somebody gave him documents. All he did was allow them to be published on a website. That's it. All he did was provide material facts. That's it. Yeah. And, and so if you can't do that anymore, if the government is going to suppress that capability, it's unalienable. We have a right to do that that the government itself cannot abrogate. The government itself cannot restrict or infringe. Yep. He gave us, we'll Julian a, Assange gave us our autonomy back as an American people. The autonomy the, to make educated decisions. And again, we are press. There is no doubt about it. Uh, Caitlin Johnson has, has done a really good article on that. I'll see if I can get the link to it. Uh, the, the definition of press has been decided by the state, by the Supreme Court. This is not up for grabs. It basically says if you're disseminating news, you're a member of the press. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you hear somebody saying, well, he's not press, 
you can take a look at this Supreme Court decision and decide for yourself. We'll have a link to it. Uh, one of yep. the articles here is, is the uh, uh, WikiLeaksization. Boy, there's a big word of of the news. Uh, Dave, we real quick. Uh, I don't think I said that right, but we'll have a link. You to did it. say it right. You absolutely said it right. The WikiLeaksization <laughs> of the American media. Uh, I'm on a roll. I got WikiLeaksization. I think that's pretty much what it is. Yep. WikiLeaksization. Yeah. Jack, Jack Goldsmith has a very good article about it, and it will be linked. And, uh, you know, it's the, the whole too, point. By the way, by the way, because it starts off with the premise, just as an assumption, that the Russians did it. So before <laughs> Keep in mind, uh, okay, well, there's a slur in here. Be aware of it. But the rest of it you might want to take a look at because it's pretty good information. Just make some bad judgments. There is no proof that the Russians did it. There's a lot of proof that the Russians didn't. Um, oh, and, oh, and there's shows. a lot of proof that the media lied about whether or not Oh, they did yeah, it. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> well, we over, I, you know, they said they said that there were 17 uh, intelligence agencies that, uh, that agreed, and, I, and ironically enough, there was almost over 17 uh, uh, retractions about that statement. <laughs> I feel like it's perfectly fitting uh, because everybody had to retract the statement. I mean, see, you know, New York Times broke the article originally, right? Right. That was the most under <laughs> undercovered retraction in the history of retractions. <laughs> hey, you know, the whole reason that you started this Russian investigation, right? All of this hysteria, all the animosity towards Vladimir Putin and all of the whole reason that Robert Mueller was even brought into this. Yeah, we retracted that because we, that wasn't even true. But let's keep all the investigations <laughs> open. Let's keep Mueller in his job. Let's not investigate the liars who told us this. Not even, they didn't even put it, put on an article saying, look, we were wrong. We should maybe re <laughs> retract and, and backtrack here. No, it's like, well, we're just going to retract this under the table real quick. And then the CNN guy, remember, he said, uh, no, none of that's true. None of that's true. On camera, none of that's true. That's just for for the ratings. Like it would, they pretended like it wasn't a big deal. As a matter of fact, you know what happened around that time period, and and this is a story that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, that was whenever they tried to start painting everybody as a Seth Rich conspiracy theorist because we said, hey, can we have an investigation? That's all we asked. We said, hey, can we have an investigation? Oh, oh, you're all conspiracy theorists. Ah, we're like, what? We're just saying, like, he was part of, like, we probably wouldn't even have asked for one if y'all didn't make it, like, a clear point to avoid doing one. We probably would have been, exactly. like, you know, we'll just chalk it up to the game. Something might have happened in D.C. And we're like, well, can we see the video footage just so we can see how it went down? Oh, no, we don't have that. Y'all the most surveilled state or place in the country. What do you mean? Well, well, what does it look like, a botched robbery? Well, what was taken? Well, not really anything. Well, well, hold on, hold on. So how was it botched? If you botched the robbery, you, you, if you killed him, you probably succeeded to the point where you can at least take something if you're going to suit, you know, rob somebody in the most surveilled place in the entire country. And they're like, no, nah, it was a botched robbery. Well, so surely the chief of police agrees with you, right? <laughs> there is absolutely no evidence that this is a botched robbery. You have no idea where that came from. Well, so why are you seeing they keep telling us that, you know what, we're starting to think that y'all might be hiding something. And then that happened. So the, the, the convergence of the idea that Seth Rich people were all right-wing conspiracy theorists came from the left questioning it constantly, the need for people to forget 
that Hillary Clinton and our, the need for people to forget that he was part of the DNC, the need for people to forget that it was being hidden by the Metro Police Department, and the need for people, for, for them to want people to believe that somehow everybody does that is a right-wing conspiracy, conspiratorial Trump supporter. And we were pretty much in, enamored with that and fighting with that. We weren't even enamored. We just had to fight the narrative. And so that entire story with New York Times and CNN all went down the drain and it never got traction because of that the Seth Rich conspiracy theory accusation started coming out. And the tragedy of it all is that there have been several significant individuals that are dead now because of mm-hmm. that whole situation. And that, you know, if we have an unalienable right to life, those people lost that unalienable right. That's really yeah, the key yeah. problem here that we've got to address. We've got to p- get people to understand that don't, at this point, feel as if they've got any reason to care. They better care because it's going to be coming to a neighborhood near you in a very short period of time. And, you know, we laugh yep. about some of this stuff, but when we get down to the nitty-gritty of it, it's pretty serious. Um, yep. How much and time have we got left there? If you, if you, got, if you lo- imagine losing your family member and they claim it's a botch robbery, you know better. You, you hire a private investigator. You know, out of a GoFundMe that you started because the, the police were not being allowed to do their job, they even start smearing your private investigator and then somebody assigns a crisis control public relations guy to you. So you can't even speak for yourself now. Uh, and, right. and to this day, in your son's death, you still have no suspects, but they've done everything. They put all their time, all, all their money and all their investments into quest, quailing a narrative instead of finding the murderer of your family member. How would you feel right. about that? Exactly. Well, we know how they are, that the spokesman says that they don't want to look into it. That is Brad Bowman, to believe. yeah. Uh, but Brad Bowman, political hitman, yeah, that guy. Uh, <laughs> and and <laughs> we'll uh, we'll try to get the documentation also up so people can make this decision for themselves or not if they would choose to ignore it. Uh, we've got uh, six minutes left in the show, and I want to talk about the new media and the millennials. Uh, A lot of the older people are still having trouble switching over from turning on their TV to turning on their computer and finding their news so they can make their own answers as individuals. Can you talk about that, Nico? Or the smartphone too, Terry. I mean, that's becoming the main vehicle for news is your own smartphone. Mm -hmm. Thank God for the technology. I'll say a couple things on that real quick. The easiest way for me to help you understand this is when you go to shop for a car, do you walk in and the dealer walks up to you and says, this is the car you're taking home today. Here you go. Have a nice day. You just leave the parking lot, assuming that that is the best car for you. No, right? You know, what if it doesn't drive right? Maybe what he told me about the car isn't true. What about the gas mileage? Is it comfortable for me? Is it comfortable for my family? Does it fit my needs? The news is the exact same way. How do you know? that that's the news that's going to, to give you the information that you need if you didn't even put any effort in looking for it. It just popped on your TV. The only thing you did was, you know, maybe turn it to CNN and pay the cable bill. That's about it. So it's the same thing. You have to go out and look for the news, and you have to look for people who lean left. Look for people who lean right. Look at the facts and judge for yourself. And at the very, very, very least, you will be much more educated than anybody else, well, than like 50% of America. Maybe you don't agree with the left, maybe you don't agree with the right on a particular issue, but you'll be educated about both sides of it so you're not ignorant, and that's the most important thing. And, and the what other is, side of the... 
Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, I was I was wanting to ask and, and what are your what is it that your network group uh is doing? And and again we are going to be working with you guys. So I want to make so, it real clear. We're trying to group up here. As individuals yeah. they're taking us out. If we let yeah, it, Julian Assange go down as an individual, they are taking us out one by one. What so what are you guys M- doing? So the MCSC network it's filling in the gap that has been left. There's a, a, a huge vacuum left in, in, in objective press. We have people, like, I, like like Terry said, he considers himself a classical liberal Democrat. I consider myself an independent progressive. We have people who consider themselves a, a little bit more left than I am. I got, a, I got a pescatarian who's trying to become a vegan on the network. I have somebody who would slaughter a baby cow right now if you ask them to on the network. And they're partners. They live together <laughs> to do their show. Okay? Yeah, but that's a noisy you know? household. We have, we have a conservative sportscaster who, who – or he's conservative leaning, or at least he used to be, who covers the political aspects of sport and why we should be paying attention to the political aspects of sports because, you know – that the, the pop culture world has an effect on how we deal with things in society and what we deem is important. And he came from a military background like myself. I mean, it's important, and, and you guys would be the investigative wing that documents and, and, and creates documentaries on these things that we have seen uh, uh, over time. And so what the MCSC Network is acting as is a, is a conduit for objectivity and facts and analysis. And so my show would be more analysis and an and opinion, I call it guide, guiding opinion. I don't try to deter the, I don't try to determine, excuse me, I don't try to create the narrative, but I do navigate the narrative so that you understand where you can be being misled or where we could be being misled based off the facts and where we should probably be heading towards based off of my experience. And that's, that's fine. Terry, they focus on the facts and the facts and the facts and some more facts and trying to understand why people don't want to read the facts. <laughs> and that's fine. And that's yes, fine. by the way, do you think you know, millennials are still interested in, in facts? I mean, do I think millennials are obsessed with facts, actually. Millennials have become obsessed. But we argue about facts all the time. I would say that that's like the one of the best. So as a weird, weird example, they always say that millennials, for some reason, <laughs> unequivocally believe that LeBron James is the best player who ever lived, and it's because of statistics. Now, what millennials could probably stand to learn about is facts within context, okay? So there's that. But that's, that's kind of like an indicator that, like, we care about what we can see on paper and what can be documented. Now, that's not obvious. That's a broad generalization. But the BDS movement started, you know, I'm not saying whether you should join a BDS movement or not. That's what I'm saying. What I am saying BDS, is that it's, what is BDS? Go ahead. That's the uh the, the ban on, on goods from Israel. Oh gotcha. Okay. All right. Yeah, so I'm not saying what but sixty one senior because, moment there. I yeah, forgot you know, what so BDS was, sorry. It started <laughs> specifically because millennials got tired of seeing what was happening in the Palestinians. Seeing how America was ignoring it, seeing our money, our tax dollars literally being sit there at the same time, we're saying we can't put home, take homeless people off the street. We can't afford health care. We can't, you know, oh, the budget. We see the $700 billion military budget. We see it. It's right there. We have it. And we can even see how it's broken down where only 1% of that actually goes to soldiers. So, like, we're oh, seeing these things. We're, we're into and, our last minute. Uh, we've got a quote from Edward R. Murrow, who's like become the patron saint of, of journalism. 
Personally, I'm, I'm not a journalist anymore. I'm repeated. Please go ahead and read that real fast, and then your thoughts on that, please, Nico. It's it's not necessary to remind you of the fact that your voice, amplified to the degree where it reaches from one end of the country to the other, does not confer upon you greater wisdom than when your voice reached only from one end of the bar to the other. And talking to the news people uh, that he was uh, addressing a a major news uh, uh, consortium uh, he was giving a speech to. So uh, that's the quote. And and if and I'll make my comment and then give it to Nico. Uh, ultimately, we have to have to the information. We're going to keep a free history. And that's really the significance of what this network is about and what we're trying to do is to give people the ability to have the proper facts so that they then can make decisions based upon proper facts. And, Nico, I'll give it back to you. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, I, my, my objective has always been to take those facts, take real life experience, you know, experiential knowledge and, and, and balance it out. You know, that's that's you all know what my sign off is. It's find your balance it is what I've always lived by. That's um, and that's gotten me where I'm at thus far. And I believe that the problem with this country and the problem with the world in general is that we every time we have a problem, we overcorrect with an extreme solution. And that is not balance. And, and it takes you out of balance. And it ta- it's, we've taken the world out of balance. And when we don't when we have this Hegelian uh, uh, we, ha, ha, we have Hegelian-based actions, which is like we have to either do it this way or this way. There's no other. There's no other answer. There's no other response we can make. You're going to, you know, you're, you're go, the duopoly. Exactly, a duopolist mindset. It is. It is dangerous, and that's. And there's a reason that we keep getting driven towards that mindset, because balance and nuance is how we have peace. It's how we solve problems. That's how you get rid of the military-industrial complex. That's how you have objective journalism. That's how you disagree, but you still remain friends and colleagues, right? And and grow forward exactly. and go together. So exactly. um, we're that, searching that for what we all. Statement. What is it we all agree on? Which it's easy to see what we disagree on. What we're searching for is what do we all agree on? And, and that's that and is, more importantly, that is. I'm glad you said that because that's what that is what we are searching for, people. And people need to acknowledge that we should be searching for it. That's really the problem because nobody even knows that we're searching for what we all agree on. There's so many being told what we disagree about. Exactly. Unity. Let's let's strive for where is the unity point? And this has mm-hmm. been Occupy Millennial Voice, and we have always signed off when we used to be the Occupy America Social Network, uh, and we we'll still sign off today when I remember to do it by saying, "Thanks for standing, Nico." It's a pleasure to have you aboard. Um, well, we thank you very much. To- it is absolutely a pleasure to have you all on, too. I agree, too. And for everybody else, you already know what time it is. Always remember more than anything else. Find your balance.